Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now.
101.5 UMFM, this is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Alves, kicking things off for us tonight. That is Come Home for Christmas from the Echocentrics with Adrian Casada off of Nacional Records, Feliz Nacional. This is the last show for Thank God It's Free Range before Christmas, and in fact, it's the last show of the year. Uh, next Friday night, I'll be handing over the reins on this show to Olivia Teft, host of Nightlight, which normally broadcasts on Sundays at 9 p.m. Uh, Olivia's going to be doing a, a recap of her favorite stuff of the year because on Sunday, December 31st, I'll be doing a recap of my songs of the year that uh, preempts all of the programming from 4 p.m. on. Jared McKediak, station manager, and I will be doing our, I think it's 19th annual countdown show. Top 20 songs, top 20 albums, starting at 4 p.m., running till midnight or sometime after that uh anyway i'll be revealing my list at that point but uh over the course of tonight's episode i'm going to be playing some of the stuff that didn't quite make it but was certainly in consideration uh so up next is bridal parties pool from their album cool down the record's great record they performed a great live show at the soon to be departed goodwill social club um, so we're going to hear that. And right after that, my interview with Imogen Moon. Last week we played Nicholson Dam and uh, had her on to discuss the fascinating project When They Start Rebelling. Coming up a little later, we've got the second episode of Our Relatives, the podcast series on homelessness produced by APTN News, in which we'll be syndicating. Uh, that will return on January 5th. Uh, and in the new year, we'll also have an episode on interruption. I've already recorded an interview with Helena Deland, who's coming to perform, and we're hoping to get some live sessions as well out of it. Um, but before that, like I said, this is Bridal Party here on 101.5 UMFM. for me now oh, nothing comes easy but I'm patient feeling my own worth and dwelling on what's good for me now oh, nothing comes easy but I'm patient
right. Well, last week we played Nicholson Dam off of Images Moons when they start rebelling, and I'm pleased to get her on the show to discuss the album. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Well, I'm very fascinated by this project. Uh, you know, the the album arrived. I was listening to the music. I dug the music, but then I I started kind of reading the liner notes, and the the story of this record is as fascinating as, as the music itself. This is your take on your grandfather's record from 1971. Mm -hmm. Had you, like, I mean, obviously he's your grandfather, but like, did you know this record growing up? I did. And that's why it, it's, it's really interesting trying to recreate something that you already know so well. It felt like, I mean, imagine trying to remake nursery rhymes, you know, I grew up with this pretty consistently throughout my life. Um, and it definitely makes a difference, you know, coming with age, you can, you can understand the meaning behind things a little bit more. And I don't really think I dived into it as much as I should have before this project, um, and understand and understood all of the, you know, little secret stories that he was <laughs> implying within the music. So yeah, it's, it's interesting, but, um, yeah, I definitely, I grew up with it so heavily to the point that yeah it makes it more difficult i think almost to change it well you mentioned the nursery rhymes make me think like at a certain point some things become kind of like like background or wallpaper right like like we we know them so much that we we don't necessarily kind of like appreciate them for what they are but they're like i'm thinking of like stories that i've read my kids where i've read it so many times i'm not really thinking about it in any like deep way yeah. Was like well, was the album kind of had it reached that point for you where you weren't like considering kind of the context in which your grandfather wrote it or what he was kind of speaking to? Yeah, I mean yeah, like I said like I guess I grew up with it. Um I probably heard it for the first time when I was uh, around 10 something like that. Um because it got reissued around then and I don't know if I had heard it before then, but from that point on, it was just kind of everywhere and all around. And at, especially after he passed, that was what my mom wanted to listen to because, you know, that's that's the comfort of it. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess I, I went through high school a lot more listening to it just over and over and over. And um, yeah, like you said, like just seeing something, it's it becomes background noise at a certain point. And then when you can kind of sit down and relearn the meaning of something, that's what I think was so exciting about it. It's, you know what, the same thing happened with a song that I'd been listening to that it wasn't my grandfather's, but just last year, um, it's called Boy, uh, no, Peas by Boy's Life. And I didn't understand the meaning of it. And then one day I was sitting, doing my makeup, which is the worst time for this to happen. And I, understood what it was about and it was from the perspective of his mother and I just started like bawling my eyes out but it's interesting because I've been listening to it for you know a year and had never understood that that's what it was about until I just like had this sudden moment of realization um I would say like a lot of the songs on this album were kind of like that for me like I didn't understand the depth of like Martin of her mind is so gruesome and scary <laughs> I didn't I didn't know how intense it was until I actually sat down and had to re rework it so the the relearning process like do you what goes into that like like is it is it a mental thing to kind of like 
open yourself up to kind of like hearing the song afresh or are you kind of like almost like an editor kind of parsing things and seeing like structural elements to it what where's your head at when you're doing this honestly what I actually did is I didn't listen to it for a long time and then kind of like it's one of the it's when I say I knew it so well, I did know it so well, but very subconsciously, I didn't like it. It's one of those songs where if you started playing it, you would sing along to it, but you couldn't sing it on your own, I guess. It was kind of more like that. So I didn't listen to the album for a long time. And then I just sat down one day and just started each song for like 10 seconds and just sang it without any back, like just turned it off and then just started singing and saw where it went um so like just little harmony changes that kind of thing just kind of came naturally and then I just recorded myself singing the entire album through with lyrics in front of me but no music after listening to about a few seconds of the song at the beginning um and some good stuff came from that also Ian Hendrickson Smith the producer obviously had a completely fresh mind on the whole the whole record so he had charts and um kind of basic I think he maybe listened to it once before starting to work on the um revised music but yeah I mean both of us just kind of tried as hard as we could to come to the project with fresh ears yeah so using a few seconds of it as like a prompt to get things going and then kind of where you go from there is up to you yeah I mean that's that's also what I do very often with my own music as well is just listen to like one little tiny section of a song and make up the rest of it as if I'm like getting a glimpse of a picture and it's like the AI generated thing. <laughs> just get a glimpse of the middle of the photo and then try and generate from there. Right. You you mentioned uh, Ian Hendrickson Smith. Producers, mm-hmm. it, it varies project to project what exactly a producer does. Some have, you know, like a really heavy hand on, on the tiller and some, you know, kind of s- sit back and, and, you know, chart the course. What was Ian's role and how did you land on working with him? Um, his role, well, it's it's definitely different depending on the genre that you're doing as well. Um, he really liked just the band kind of coming up with whatever they came up with and then kind of just gave a very basic laydown in demos, um, just made it on his iPad and sent it out to everyone and just said, so try and stay along these lines or whatever. Um, but just with a few instruments and then kind of let everyone go from there. Um, yeah, he, he kind of just, <laughs> it it is really different with jazz than it would be with other things as well. He kind of just, or not necessarily jazz, but soul music. Um, he, he kind of just said, here's my basic idea of what to play here's the emotion that I want now play it. Um, yeah. And I I landed on him because of Corey weeds, Corey weeds and him had been friends for a long time. And, um, he also knew my mom a while back. They connected through an old friend, Ross Taggart, um, Ross Taggart passed away as well, sadly in I think 2012. And he was a really good friend of my mom's and a really good friend of Ian's. Uh, so they, they connected once after he passed away, just, you know, as, as friends finding comfort. Uh, and 
hadn't really been in touch since until Corey Weeds suggested um, we work alongside them. So yeah, that's kind of how it came about. Now, had you worked with Corey, like previously? I was working. Or just know him or? Uh, yeah, I he also is, is. I mean, it's a small it's a small jazz scene here in Vancouver. Um, yeah, there's a few ways that I knew him. So I don't know, lots of mutuals. He also knew my mom through Ross as well. Um, he also worked with a really good friend of mine, uh, Maya Ray, who um, I went to high school with, and I connected with her about knowing him as well. Um, yeah, it's honestly, it's just a small scene. <laughs> like everyone kind of has to know who everyone is, um, especially with, you know, only a few music schools here. And yeah, like I said, a really, really just jazz is not the most prominent style of music in Vancouver. So how did you end up part of that scene? Like what, what, why did you gravitate to, to jazz and, and soul music coming into it? Like a, a smaller scene? Yeah. M well, my mom was a, a jazz singer. My, my grandpa's love was jazz. He just, he, he did the original album in this kind of like psychedelic pop style because it was what would get the message heard um because at the time no one was really going to listen unless he was you know doing it in a poppy style and the messages that he wanted to get across were really important so his true love was jazz so that kind of raised my mom with loving jazz and uh him and my my grandpa and my mom actually recorded a, an album together as well that's unreleased um just because again sadly he passed away before they could do much with it. Um, so I was just really raised with jazz. And then I released my first EP when I was 18. Um, and I didn't really know what I was doing with it. <laughs> I just wrote a few songs and wanted to get them recorded. And that was more to just get my foot in the door of just the music industry. And at the time it was actually, so I could hopefully get into music school. Um, and I just was, you know practicing with every style I could and then kind of landed on the fact that everything that I like regardless of genre has a jazz influence so that's just kind of where I landed honestly but I do want to definitely branch out a little bit more as well after this and try a few things but I can guarantee everything will always have a jazz influence <laughs> so that's kind of the, the place from which you start like in in some sense, it's that like few seconds prompt is that like the jazz yeah. is kind of those few seconds, no matter where you end up. Exactly. Yeah. I was actually saying on a different interview, one of my like favorite concerts of all time was um, Smino's concert. And Smino is like a an alternative rapper, I would say. And I love his music produced and, you know, released the way that it is. But his live concert had a had a live band and you could just hear so much jazz influence in it. And it just like struck it out of the park I don't know if that's a saying about a golf thing <laughs> um yeah it just was incredible because anything that I love has like some some sort of little hint of jazz in it the the band I mean did they get assembled through Ian like is that his connections um, the band on on this so, record like yeah um no it was more so Ian it was Ian wanted to do the project and he kind of assembled who was available and <laughs> willing and interested um so yeah it was it was mostly me and Ian working together we went through so many different like trial and errors with different producers and once I got to Ian and like he was willing and obviously he's incredible um yeah we were just like okay how do we get the best people on this and 
and he made it happen. Yeah, because you were talking about, you know, like a lot of these guys. So first of all, there's members of the Dap Kings, and then you've mm-hmm. got like Adam Scone, who plays mm-hmm. the the Hammond organ. Mm-hmm. I mean, they all have kind of like funk backgrounds but have like contributed on like jazz recordings as well like it seems like maybe that's that like marriage of like no matter what there's like a little bit of jazz to it yeah and and i i keep referring to the album as jazz but it's not necessarily jazz it it's kind of i mean we're still deciding what it is (laughs) when we're trying to promote it um it is pop jazz i would say or something along the lines of r&b soul that kind of thing um which is obviously what these guys are so well versed and that's that's their whole thing and you can just hear it in them you, you know at, at this at the level that they're at you can you can point out their sound so easily so you know it's not going to stray too far from who they just are naturally and that's what i love about it uh you went to new york to record it uh like off the floor or did you do a lot of tracking or like how did you guys kind of approach this Sorry, off the floor. Like, did, did, like, was it like you and the band together recordings? Like, oh, I see. <laughs> like live, or like you know, are are they recording something and you're coming in and like laying vocals over top of it afterwards? Yes. Or? Yeah, I laid vocals on top. So I went to New York twice. The first time, it was just it was really nice because I didn't actually like need to be there. I suppose we talked about, you know, if COVID was a problem that I could zoom while the band does all the recordings. But I'm really, really grateful that I got to go because. I did have like a lot of really cool moments of like being the band leader, even though that was obviously Ian's role. But um, yeah, it, it was really nice being there and just like overseeing it and being able to explain my vision for what a song should look like. And then once all of those bass tracks were down, I went back to New York and recorded at um, Ian's home studio. So that was also really nice because we got to stay there and really connect and understand our vision for what we wanted to do. And yeah, that was really nice. Your mom does background vocals. My mom does do background vocals, yeah. Was that, like, did you did you ask her, or was she, like, pressing <laughs> to do this because it was her, her dad's record, or, like, what was, was... Yeah, well, originally, so this came... <laughs> it's kind of a long story. Um, I'm, I'm going to try and shorten it as much as I can, because if you can't tell, I have ADHD. Um, but basically, she wanted to redo the album with two female voices because the original has two male voices she wanted to redo it with two female voices and she wanted it to be me and her she's she'd been thinking about it since like way before I even started music and then when I started doing music she suggested it and I said oh I actually kind of had a similar idea I wanted to use one of his songs I wanted to use isn't it a pity on my original EP um, which didn't end up happening but when I started just really getting into music we kind of had this suggestion and um Corey found my first EP and then asked if I wanted a career in music and I said yeah and then that was kind of the idea that came out of it um we talked a lot about obviously the rules that we were going to play in it but she was she just wanted the project to happen she just wanted the message to be spread um so yeah it ended up being really fantastic and I'm really glad that I have her voice on it too because it becomes such a sentimental piece of music yeah that, that it's not just a two generation but a, a three generation kind of conversation yeah. uh renaming this like because obviously you know it's a it's a reworking of your grandfather's album that was you know songs for the new industrial state did you think about 
like some sort of play on on that title or like how did you land on when they start rebelling <laughs> yeah when they start rebelling uh came from the original liner notes it was just a quote in the original liner notes um we obviously thought about doing like one or sorry songs for the new industrial state reimagined but songs for the new industrial state is the longest name i've ever heard in my life so <laughs> we were like okay hey, we can't do that um and we didn't want to call it the exact same title just because you know i actually don't know <laughs> not gonna lie i don't know but um yeah we were talking about like songs for the new industrial state reworked reimagined and it was just too much of a mouthful um and we wanted to cut it down quite a bit but landed on something pretty much just as long <laughs> so yeah when they start rebelling was just a quote from the liner notes that i just found really interesting and when i read it i just went like oh wow that's perfect because yeah i said i said in um an epk when they start rebelling implies that it hasn't happened or that it has and we're referring to this huge event in history and how important that will be or has been and that it hasn't happened enough yeah cuz the the topics addressed on on your grandfather's record were you know very of the moment but remain important and and like contemporary when mm -hmm. you say that it hasn't happened enough right like that this is something that hasn't fully been addressed or barely addressed mm -hmm. well i think that's a huge part of what i just as a person want to get out there is that performative activism can't last and won't last so if you're you know it's it's so common to be able to just post something casually or make a casual comment and then not really follow through and doing anything and yeah i don't know i it, it is happening and i don't want to diminish all of the hard work that that real amazing activists are doing and at the same time it's just more of a wake up like i want it to be a wake up call for people that are kind of going oh i don't feel like doing much right now or i don't i don't feel like learning that or i don't feel like doing the research it's kind of more of a wake up call for that um but i absolutely don't want it to diminish the fact that there is there is a lot happening right now and there's i mean the work that people are putting in is absolutely incredible and really inspiring um but yeah it it's still i mean nothing is really settled <laughs> so no for sure well, I hope this adds to the conversation. Um, before I let you go, Imogen, I want to get you to pick a track off of the record that we can play for listeners. And if you have a reason why you're picking that song or an anecdote about it, love to hear that. Oh, that's fun. I haven't gotten to do that before. That's exciting. Um, how about Colored Plastics? I, I don't even know if that one's been played on, on radio before. It's, um, it's the most, uh, I guess, intensely in your face about environmental activism. Um, as you could probably guess from the name, colored plastics. Um, it's just the the first line is colored plastics stronger than steel. Uh, why do they always break when I need them? So it's just kind of about, I mean, it can have a lot of meanings as well, but it's about just the fact that there's these unbelievably expensive and like earth shattering items that are just in our lives constantly i mean i'm looking around my room right now there's so much stuff it's just like too much stuff um so i guess it's just it's the most uh 
universal uh, way of looking at consumerism. Yeah. Right. As we like, you know, Christmas is right around the corner and it's like exactly, prime yeah. consumerism <laughs> day. It's, it's tough. Hey, cause I'm starting to be at the age where I'm like, I would actually like someone to come and clean out my house instead of giving me gifts. There's too much stuff. <laughs> Well, I appreciate the the gift of your time today, Imogen, and and, and thank you for for talking about the record. Uh, we'll give Colored Plastics a listen, and uh, th- thanks very much for for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day.
There was a time during the pandemic when homeless people became more visible than ever before. Their usual haunts were closed and social distancing reduced the number of shelter beds. So some began living in Winnipeg Transit bus shelters. The glass enclosures are meant to protect bus riders from the sun, rain and snow. But one became home for Teresa Bauer after she was sexually assaulted at Nadinawimak, an Indigenous homeless shelter. She lived in the bus shack for two months during a frigid Manitoba winter, begging the question, where are Indigenous women supposed to feel safe? I'm Kathleen Martins. This is Our Relatives. A warning, this episode deals with disturbing subject matter. No person should be living in our I'm sure we can do much better than this. Nobody should have to live like this. It's one of the busiest blocks on Main Street. Today, it's the site of a protest. I know exactly the things that goes on in these places, and it's very horrible, the things that go on. And if the public knew, then they would be out there with us and trying to get this place shut down also. Barb Guimond and Vinnie Lilly advocate for some of the most vulnerable people in society, the homeless. They're worried about the Manwin Hotel, a dilapidated building on the Main Street Strip that rents 30 rooms by the month. People have been killed here. Yeah, I heard the last murder that went on. When was that? A month ago, two months ago. Was it in the room? That guy's like, please remember me, remember me. Who was the victim? I, some old man, that's all I know. What yeah. happened to him? He got beaten to death. Tammy, who wouldn't give her last name, is from an Ojibwe community northeast of Winnipeg. She and her boyfriend use drugs and live in one of the cramped rooms. It's something they wouldn't be able to do together at a homeless shelter. It should be condemned. Yes. People should not be living in here. People should not be going into this building. It is falling apart. It is one giant fucking trap house. It is awful. People die here constantly. And nobody fucking knows about it. That's why Barb is here. She's leading the charge to shut the man wind down. I went there into the lobby, mm-hmm. and um, I couldn't get pa- I couldn't get past there because the smell, the scent. Oh. What does it smell like? Terrible. Well, can you like uh, uh, urine? A mix- mixture of urine and whatever. I have a high tolerance for smell, and I couldn't stand that. I had to walk out, and I don't see how people can be living in there. Today, she's taking reporters inside, where it's dark, looks like trouble, and reeks of neglect. The owners defend their business. They say the rooms are needed when shelter beds fill up and the 134-year-old building is undergoing repairs ordered by the city. They charge $650 a month for a room without a bathroom. 
so much grime and garbage collects on this block that city workers regularly pressure wash the sidewalk. Well, it's decrepit and just uninhabitable in my opinion. I've heard that there's kids being taken there and um, women, that women being held against their will there. And that's not right. There are four homeless shelters in this area, once known as Skid Row. It's about 15 minutes north of the famous intersection at Portage and Main. So you're closing down the Manwin? I hope so. Yeah. Right on. I hope so. Yeah. This is terrible. Yeah. The Manwin is covered in graffiti and several windows are broken. It's sandwiched between the Main Street Project homeless shelter and a food bank. Barb fears women are lured inside for a drink, a fix, or a place to sleep, especially since a suspected serial killer allegedly met his victims at homeless shelters. More trafficking, human trafficking of our women, more murders of our women, and that's what I'm trying to prevent. No more stolen sisters. Statistics show Indigenous women are four times more likely to be victims of crime than non-Indigenous women. That number quadruples if they are homeless. My sister's name was Stephanie Ann Henderson. She was a mother of five children. Um, she got married when she was young, 17. She left an abusive marriage. And um, she came out to the city, got involved with drugs. The median age for women experiencing homelessness in Winnipeg is 36. Barb's sister was about that age when she was murdered. This was, um, 2004 is when she got killed, execution style. And um, of course we, no, we didn't have, we had a closed casket. Mm. Her sister's murder drives Barb to keep an eye on homeless women and girls, and the man win. My dad told us to let it go and we'll just let her rest in peace. And, but her story needs to be told too. Winnipeg is a capital city with about a million people. It has the largest urban indigenous population in Canada at 18%. There are 634 First Nations in Canada, with 63 of them in Manitoba. Just west of Portage and Maine is the city's downtown, where the Winnipeg Jets play. Most of the workers have gone for the day, when Ashley, who wouldn't say her last name, has a transit bus shelter to herself. So I choose to be on the street. So yeah, so till I change my lifestyle, then I won't have to live like this. Ashley has been homeless since her children went into foster care. Mothers who grow up in the child welfare system are flagged as parenting risks. There are about 10,000 children in Manitoba's child welfare system. Approximately 90% of them are Indigenous. I fought every day to get him back in seven and it just wasn't getting me anywhere. So, I mean, if I was at home with my kids, I wouldn't be in this area, you know what I mean? Ashley has ties to a Cree community in Alberta. 
Here, she sleeps on a friend's couch or in dark places outside. She lost her monthly child support when the kids were seized and her home when she couldn't pay the rent. Advocates say it's poverty, addiction and domestic violence that usually put women on the street. They don't mention how losing your children could cause all three. That's what happened to Morgan Harris. That broke my mother Morgan. What she faced after that was something that no person ever of any color should have to face. Struggling with addictions, losing her home, losing her children, battling mental illness. Morgan didn't deserve, she didn't deserve to live in fear. She didn't deserve anything that was passed on to her within her life. Morgan didn't deserve to get beaten by men on the streets and raped. Cambria Harris is Morgan's eldest daughter. She eulogized her mom at a recent candlelight vigil where there were prayers, songs, and drumming. Those were the stories that I heard growing up, and that's the stark reality of an Indigenous woman struggling to find a safe place on the streets. Morgan didn't deserve to be sleeping in back lanes. Morgan didn't deserve to be sleeping on a thin little bed on a metal frame in a shelter. And she deserves so much more and she was worth so much more. Morgan and Ashley weren't eligible to stay in women's shelters because they weren't victims of domestic violence. When Morgan died in 2022, police allege she was murdered by a suspected serial killer. She was one of four Indigenous women a Winnipeg man is accused of killing. It's been cleaned up since the pandemic when Air Canada Park became a homeless encampment known for shocking daytime violence. It's in this downtown green space where Teresa Bauer shares her story of being sexually assaulted at a homeless shelter. I fell asleep in front of the TV and, and I woke up and there was a sheet on me and my pants were down and, and I just turned around and started punching the guy out. And then I got up and I started screaming. My pants was down. You woke up in time. Yeah. And then you decided, um, what? I'm not staying there. I'm not safe there. Teresa fled to a bus shelter. 
I stayed there for two months, and I stayed there when the last storm of the winter. A Cree woman from northern Manitoba. She was five when her mother died. She was sent 750 kilometers to Winnipeg to grow up in foster care, where she was sexually abused. But the motorists who honked at her in the bus shelter and flipped her the bird didn't know that. I don't care what people say. They can say whatever they want to say. Barb was sexually assaulted in her Anishinaabe nation outside Winnipeg by a known predator. She says it's a terrifying experience that happens in many communities and sends victims packing for the city, where they aren't really safe at all. My sister told me, Barb, thanks for everything, I love you. And that's the last time we saw her alive. On the next episode of Our Relatives. Happy birthday to you. Homeless people are largely invisible. They miss out on a lot of things and the support of family and friends until someone mentions their birthday. I'm Kathleen Martins. Goodbye for now. Relatives, written and reported by Kathleen Martins. Recorded and edited by Jesse Andrushko. Produced by Mark Blackburn. Original theme music by Backyard Rink. Cover art by Shania Murdoch and Alicia Dawn.
Back here on Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. Right before the break, Tribulations from Cinephonic's album Visions. That came out on Marlowe Records, who also released a fantastic record by Atlantis Jazz Ensemble called Celestial Suite, uh, both from my running long list of the year. Uh, Night Beats before that with Blue off of Rajan on Suicide Squeeze, another great record. And we're going to close out with a half-hour block of more great stuff that uh, didn't quite make my top 20, but uh, was certainly in contention. We've got some Donnie McCaslin, always reliable jazz artist. we got the Ironsides on the always reliable coal mine records. Idle Moon, Gogo Penguin, Sappho, Omayela, and El Bujo to close things off as we hand it over to After 8 Radio. As I mentioned at the start of the show, next Friday, Olivia Teft, host of Nightlights, will be on counting down her year-end picks and my top 20 will be starting at 4 p.m. on December 31st on uh, the annual countdown show that I do with station manager Jared McKediak. Uh That's it for this edition of Thank God It's Free Range. I'll be back January 5th. Happy New Year. Happy Holidays. Take care of each other out there.
Turning up, oh, am I turning up? 